Well, good evening. Glad to see you back this evening. Take your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 2. I'm skipping ahead. Daniel chapter number 2. Last week we started a series through the book of Daniel entitled Living as Exiles. What is it like to live as an exile? Well, like the Israelites of Daniel's day, we are God's people living in a foreign culture. The Apostle Peter reminds us that we are aliens and strangers in this world. These young men were exiled to a foreign country and exposed to a foreign culture. But Daniel's perspective was that God had brought him to this place and therefore God would be able to keep him faithful there. In the first lesson, we examined how choices prove character. We looked at our greatest trial is to trust God when our world falls apart. Our greatest temptation is to compromise our beliefs. And our greatest triumph is to stay pure in an impure culture. Today, we're going to be talking about dreams. Dreams are strange things. They really are. Out of eight hours sleep at night, on the average, you'll dream an hour and a half to two hours of those eight hours. Experts tell us that everybody dreams. Some people just don't remember what they've dreamed. Today, we're going to be looking at a dream that a king had thousands of years ago that had not only personal importance, but national and even eternal significance. I want to set the stage for you by reading the, from the text verse number one, and then we're going to look at some application. It says in Daniel chapter two, verse one, now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. And the word troubled in this verse means to be beaten, compelled, or pushed. It was the kind of dream that causes one to sit up suddenly in bed with their heart pounding, eyes wide open, and utterly terrified. It was one of those dreams that you do remember. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was one of the greatest world leaders of his time. In fact, he was the first world leader that conquered the entire civilized world. He built a beautiful city called the ancient city of Babylon, which is today located about 40 miles from Baghdad in the modern state of Iraq. He was such a great leader that Saddam Hussein declared himself to be the reincarnation of Nebuchadnezzar. One of Saddam Hussein's goals was to rebuild the ancient city of Babylon and restore Iraq to a position of world power as it was back then. Saddam did succeed in spending billions of dollars in rebuilding the city of Babylon. He did not succeed in causing it to be a world power. At the last, his last report in life, he was found hiding in a rat hole. He was taken tried and hanged for his crimes against humanity, so much for being the next Nebuchadnezzar. But here was Nebuchadnezzar, and we're told that he had a dream. 
You may be aware that Dr. Sigmund Freud, the father of modern psychoanalysis, wrote a book entitled The Interpretation of Dreams, in which he said dreams are really repressed feelings of our fears, our worries, and our anxieties. Some people have dreams that they're back in school again. I used to have a dream when I was in college that it was the first day of class and I couldn't remember what classes I'd signed up for. Now I dream that it's Sunday morning and that I somehow have failed to realize or to prepare. Perhaps you remember the significance of your dreams, but sometimes you don't remember at all. You just realize you wake up frustrated. My dreams typically are just weird. They don't make any sense at all to me. When you start trying to logically pull it apart and look at it and say, that just doesn't make sense. We want to look at Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but before we do, I want to, I want to address the subject of does God speak through dreams today? Because that's a relevant idea. Well, the answer is yes, sometimes, but be careful. God can use dreams. He can do anything he wants to. He's God. But you've got to be very careful because dreams aren't the best messenger from God. In fact, the Bible warns us about that. In Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 25, it warns us about being careful about trying to always say dreams are from God. Jeremiah wrote, I know what they are saying speaking for God, of all these prophets who preach lies using me as their text saying, I had this dream, I had this dream. David Jeremiah in his commentary on Daniel wrote, does God speak through dreams today? If we have dreams that we think are inspiration, chances are they're more likely indigestion. If we think someone can interpret our dreams, we'll be spending money and our time on guesses, speculation, and mostly baloney. We have God's full revelation, he's speaking about the Bible, and there is a big period at the end of it. Dreams do appear in the Bible, in the Old Testament. You remember Joseph interpreted the dreams of the butler and the baker in, in Genesis chapter 40. And that, in turn, led to the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream in Genesis chapter 41. There are dreams throughout the book of Daniel, but there really are no dreams from God in the New Testament except those surrounding the birth of Jesus. Joseph had a dream telling him that he should take Mary as his wife in Matthew chapter 1. The wise men had a dream about fleeing before Herod the Great was able to kill all the boy babies in Matthew chapter 2. But after that, there are no more dreams recorded. Why? The revelation of God is complete in the scriptures. The writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to our fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. So we have, a very, we have to be very, very careful about trying to read meaning from God into our dreams. Now, 
Let's go back to the background and pick up in verse number two. It says, then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the, the astrolo astrologers, and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. And then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Let your servants hear the dream, and we will give you the interpretation. Now, there, who are these wise men that he's talking about? There are four different groups listed. There are the magicians, who were the scholars. There were the astrologers and the sorcerers, who were the mediums of their day. And there are the Chaldeans, who are also called the Magi, who were the wise men of Babylon. Now, <clears throat> there were books in the Babylonian culture which were considered code books to tell them what the dreams meant. All the king has to do is say, this is what I dreamed, and they could all get together and they could consult their books and they can say, this is what it means. But here's the problem, verse number five. The king said to the Chaldeans, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut into pieces and your houses shall be made as ash heaps. However, if you tell me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. The King James translation of this verse says, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the thing is gone from me, which seems to suggest that the king had forgotten the dream. Most modern translations see this uh, as coming from the king choosing to withhold the content of the dream from the wise men. Accordingly, then, this verse would say, I'm not going to tell you what the dream was. You're supposed to be smart. You tell me what the dream was, and then you interpret it. And the king gave them a little incentive about it. He says, and if you don't, I'm going to cut you in little pieces, and I'm going to tear your houses down and reduce them to piles of rub rubble, which is a pretty good incentive, I would think. But their comeback to the king was, uh, what you're saying is impossible. It's not possible. I think the king may have been pretty shrewd. It may have been that he had already begun to suspect that all their interpretations were false. And so he decided to test their integrity. So he says, tell me what I dreamed and then tell me what it means. As a point of information, by the way, for all of you who trust in horoscopes and trying to find your future in the stars, it's just as fake and fraud-filling as this is. We, have, we all read of movie stars and national political figures and heads of Fortune 500 companies who have at one time or another consulted an astrologer. This is something that bothers me, and maybe you can help me with this, because I don't understand. Have you ever noticed the locations of these psychics and prom readers as you go across the country? None of them are living in mansions. They're usually in little run-down houses by the side of the road. If you're 
getting things directly from God? Shouldn't you be doing a little better than that? If this is the best you can do, uh, I don't know that I need your advice. Uh, it looks like you're not doing so great yourself. Obviously, the truth is there's nothing supernatural there. Now, look with me at verse 7 through verse 10. It says, And the angel said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and, you, and we will give you the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time. He just says, you're trying to kill time. Because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the kings this matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or rule, ruler has ever asked such a thing of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. I think the important part of that verse is there is not a man who can do this. They're saying it is humanly impossible. They go on in verse 11 to say it is a difficult thing that the king requests. There is no other who we can tell, tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. What they're really saying is that what the king is asking is too difficult. They say no one can reveal it to the king except the gods, small g, not big g God, but small g God, and they do not live among men. Back in the Babylonian culture, they worshipped many gods, plural, polytheistic. But these gods were impersonal forces and they had no personal relationship with people. Aren't you glad that we have a personal God who wants to have a relationship with us? They said one thing that was correct. No man could do this. But they said the gods don't have anything to do with man. That's wrong because our God has everything to do with us. We're going to see that right here. Look at verse number 12 and 13. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious, and he gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Obviously, Nebuchadnezzar is not a man given to overreacting. He's just going to have them all killed. Not just the ones who are present in the room, but all of them throughout the kingdom. It says, I'm going to have all the wise men of Babylon killed. And so the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Now, this brings us to the place that I want us to begin to make some application here. First of all, in life, we are going to face some impossible situations. You and I may face situations that we consider humanly impossible. That's what Daniel faced. That's what these wise men faced. The king said, tell me what I'd dreamed and I'll and tell me what it means and they said that's not possible that's impossible it can be that we're going through an impossible crisis in our life at this very moment I have a friend who says you are either in a storm going into a storm or coming out of a storm in your life right now 
It may be the storm relates to marriage. It may relate to our finances. It may relate to our health. But it does relate to some problem that we're going through or have been through or headed into that seems almost impossible. You just need to know sometimes we do face impossible situations. Daniel did, and we do. Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verse 27, and Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You'll remember that this comes at the conclusion of them seeing the rich man unable to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And based on their theology, they thought everyone who was rich was in a right relationship with God. And if he can't make it into heaven, how's anybody else going to make it into heaven? They said, that's impossible. And then Jesus replied by saying, that's true. It's impossible with man, but it is possible with God. The order has been given, and they have, according to verse 13, already begun killing the wise men. And now they come to look for Daniel and his companions. It has been said that the true character of a person is revealed in the time of crisis. Daniel faced a great crisis when the royal executioner showed up to his door to carry out the command of the king. The response of Daniel is an example of how God's children in any kind should react to crisis. He clearly shows us a man of sterling character who has learned how to trust God. Verse 14, it says, And then <clears throat> with the counsel and wisdom, Daniel, and Sin Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, to have gone out to, king, to kill the wise men of Babylon. The, the New International Version translates this verse, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. This plainly points out the fact that we talk, when we talk to people, we ought to strive to have wisdom and tact. Wisdom is the ability to say the right thing. Tact is the ability to say it the right way. Tact, then, is the ability to say the right thing in the right way, and that's what Daniel had in verse 15 through 18. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? And then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. In other words, he explained to Daniel what is behind this decision of the king. And so Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Second thing I want you to see is facing impossible situations force us to rely on God alone. Here's the second thing that we learn, and that is, if we are, find ourselves in those kinds of conditions, we need to rely on God. That's what happened to Daniel. The king said, Daniel, tell me what I dreamed. Impossible. Daniel had to run to God, and he had to find the strength from God. Sometimes people misquote 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which is, promises God will not allow us to be tempted beyond our power and ability to bear it. And they mistranslate it, God will never put on me more than I can bear. And that's not true. That's not what the scripture says. 
That's not in the Bible. In fact, you may find just the opposite is true. God may put on you more than you can bear because that's the only way he can get us to turn to him. And instead of trying to do it ourselves, we can turn to God and find our strength in him. But, because, but as long as you think you can handle it, you think you can deal with the impossibility yourself, you're not going to call on God. Sometimes we get in such desperate situations that we can't get out of, and it's only when we depend utterly and completely and totally on God that we find the victory. Now, <clears throat> let's look at what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, uh, and see if this doesn't sound like somebody who had more than they could bear. He said, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hopes, and he will continue to deliver us. So when Daniel felt this impossibility, he didn't say, I think I can handle it. Just be, I'll just be tough. I can handle it. He went to God and he depended on God just like we need to. The third thing is don't forget that when you need wisdom, pray. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known. This is verse 17. Made the, made the decision known to his companions that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. What did they do? Very simply, they prayed. They asked for God to reveal to them what they needed to know. Daniel and his friends didn't get together and say, let's concoct some kind of a believable story that we can tell Nebuchadnezzar, and he'll say, well, that's kind of like what I dreamed. No, he called his friends to pray with him. And the best thing that we can do when we face difficulties is to pray. Not even... <clears throat> Even beyond that, we ought to ask others to pray along with us. In the book of James, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. We know that Daniel was a man of prayer because we see him praying throughout the book of Daniel. So when we face impossibility, the first thing that we ought to do is pray. Prayer shouldn't be our last resort, but all too often that's exactly what it is. We try to handle it ourselves, and then when we can't handle it, we finally turn to God and look for his help. But really, <clears throat> what can we do better than, first of all, pray and ask for God to give us wisdom? So when you face a problem, the first thing you do is pray, and then God gives you wisdom to know what to do about it. We need to, first of all, pray specifically. First of all, Daniel didn't mess around. He didn't beat around the bush. He said, God, I need to know what this dream was. He didn't just say, God, bless me. He said, God, give me wisdom about what this dream was. One of our problems is that we may not be praying specifically enough. You know, just not praying just generally, but 
praying specifically for what God want for what we want God to do. And we need to pray persistently. He prayed and he kept on praying. Obviously, he got on his knees and he said, God, I'm not going to stop praying about this until you either give me the answer or I run out of time and they cut my head off. But one or the other, I'm going to continue to pray. So he keeps his promises. God is true to his word. But oftentimes, I'm afraid our problem is that we stop praying too soon. The answer for Daniel is revealed in verse 19. And then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Fourth, when God answers your prayer, don't forget to praise him. The ending of verse 19 says, And so Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And because God answers Daniel's prayer, he, pers- he kind of bursts forth into a spontaneous, enthusiastic praise. It says in verse 20, Blessed be the name of our God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. In verse 21, Daniel begins highlighting two aspects of God's character. First of all, he highlights God's power. He says, and he changes the times and seasons He removes kings and raises up kings. It is God who has the control over the events of this world. The prophet Isaiah spoke of God's power over the affairs of the world when he said, He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out his heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. So Daniel, first of all, speaks about God's power. Secondly, he speaks about God's wisdom. In verse 22, he says, and he reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells within him. Any wisdom that Daniel displayed, he said, I have received from God. And in verse 23, Daniel gets personal. He said, I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers, that you have given me wisdom and might and have not made and have now made known to me what we ask of you for you have made known to us the king's demand now i want you to notice before we go on daniel says my prayers have been answered it is not yet proven that he has the answer he had a vision from god that this was the answer But he won't know it's the right answer until he goes to the king. He says, is this what you dream? When he goes before the king and says, Nebuchadnezzar, here's what you dreamed and here's the interpretation. It says, am I right? 
In other words, folks, he was acting completely on faith when he began to praise God. He was praising God for the answer to prayer even before he really knew for sure that that was the answer, before he had any evidence of it. Praying in faith always produces praise. That's what Daniel did. He prayed, and when God gave him assurance of the answer, he started praising God. Sometimes our prayers are nothing more than like a shopping list. Lord, this is what I need, and I need this, and I need this, and I need that, and I need this. That's our prayers sometimes. And sometimes we don't even stop and thank him when he answers the prayers. And the best time to thank God for the answers to our prayers are right after we ask him. Don't wait until you have the visible evidence of an answered prayer. He had an impression from God. And then he started praising God. Lord, thank you for answering this prayer. We have to realize that God always answers prayer. Always. But he doesn't always answer yes, does he? God can answer yes. He can answer no, and he can say, not yet. But he always answers prayer. When we face a problem, and we're always faced with some decision that we're going to pray about, we have to decide, am I going to pray about this or am I going to worry about this? If I pray about it, I can't worry about it. So we ought to pray about it. Look at what the Bible says in Philippians 4. 6 and 7 and this is from the paraphrase the the message don't fret or worry instead of worrying pray let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers letting God know your concerns before you know it a sense of God's wholeness everything comes together for good and will come and settle down it is wonderful what happens when Christ displays it displaces worry at the center of your life. In verse 24, it says, Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon, and he said to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Let me before, take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Now, <clears throat> if Daniel had been a mere politician, this was his prime opportunity to get rid of all his competition. Go ahead and kill all of them. Just save me and my friends. But Daniel was not that way. He demonstrated grace. He said, don't kill any of them. Take me to the king and I will interpret his dream for him. Verse 25, Daniel was brought before the king. And it says, and then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I have found a man. Doesn't that sound just like a politician? I have found the man to answer your situation. I found the answer for you. Well, Arioch didn't do anything. Daniel came to him and said, I, I've got the answer. You take me to the king. He says, I've found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. It's important, I think, for us to remember that in verse 1, we're told that these things happen in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. You say, okay, how's that 
significant. Well, since according to Babylonian reckoning, a king did not count the first year as part of his reign, three years have actually transpired since what was recorded in chapter 1, which means Daniel is perhaps 17 or 18 years old when he goes before the most powerful man in the world. In verse 26 through 27, the king answered and said to him, Daniel, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. I want you to underline the first part of verse 28 because it's the theme of the book of Daniel. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. He, God, gives wisdom to the wise and reveals the mysterious future as he's done in the case with Daniel. This was precisely what the Babylonian sayers wrote off as impossible because the gods do not dwell with men. Yet Israel's God, even though he is unequaled and exalted high above the heavens, does dwell with the humble and the contrite of heart. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Daniel says, King, what has transpired here is God has given you a view of the future. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. And Daniel says that God has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what's going to happen in the days ahead. In verse 29 and 30, he says, As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about which would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more, more wisdom than any living, but for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king that you may know the thoughts of your heart. Notice how humble Daniel is. He says, it's not because I'm smarter than all these other men. It's not because I'm wiser than all these other men. It's because God gave me the answer. Now, I'm going to leave you hanging until next week because we're going to pick up in verse 31, and it's going to take us a while to, to tread through uh, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has received and what it means. But in the process, in verses 31 through 45, going to talk about the contents of that dream because it's fascinating. Daniel is going to predict the next 400 years of human history right there in that dream, which is going to bring us to the fifth and final point of the message this evening. That is, whatever you face, remember that there is God in heaven and he's in control. Whatever impossibility or difficulty we may face, we ought to remember the theme of this book. There is a God in heaven, and he's in control. If 
could just bring one thing in your heart and mind tonight in closing, this would be that. Whatever you face, whatever impossibility, whatever difficulty may come, there's a God in heaven. And when you say, I am unable, he says, I am able. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for each one that's been so faithful to come out tonight. I pray that in some way this might minister to their hearts. I pray that the thought that there is a God in heaven who's in control might give reassurance to our hearts that we're not in a world that there is no hope for. But you are our God. And you do dwell among us. And you do care about what happens to us. Help us, Lord, to gain wisdom from the testimony of Daniel and about how he took all things to you in prayer. Thank you again for this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. Plates are here in the front in case you need to turn an offering in. Thank you so much. You're dismissed.